Hello and welcome to The Sound Architect. I am joined by the incredibly talented Charlie Clauser. Thanks for joining us today, Charlie. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Thank you. And we're very, very happy to have you. Now, before we talk about anything else, you've had a crazy interesting career so far and I'd, I'd just love to hear how your musical journey began. Well, I actually studied electronic music in college just in the few years just before MIDI was invented. So when I was studying electronic music, that was that meant an ARP 2500 with two of the wing cabinets and four Scully four-track reel-to-reel machines. So it was sort of, you know, classic liberal arts electronic music education. And then I, you know, I graduated college in 85, which was, you know, a year or two after MIDI came on the scene. So things were changing rapidly. But I was glad that I got some kind of foundation in electronics and synthesizers and so forth before it was all radically changed by computerization and so forth. So I still am a fan of old crude electronics and synthesizers and that'll always have a soft spot in my heart. And I'm kind of glad that, you know, I'm kind of glad that I was able to get that foundation established before being distracted by all of the the goodies of the more recent (laughs) technology. So you were obviously in the band Nine Inch Nails and you have a strong background in music production before you turned towards music composition. How, How did that transition sort of come about? How did that take place? Well, actually, one of the first jobs I ever had making music for money was fresh out of college Uh, I did work in a music store in Manhattan at one of the Sam Ash music stores on 48th Street for a year or two, and one of my customers there was an Australian record producer and film composer named Cameron Allen, and he actually hired me out of the store to come and help him set up a rig in Manhattan and to, to work on scoring the final season of a TV series called The Equalizer. This would have been about... 87 or so. And so that, you know, two years working at the music store was the only real job I ever had. But I started working with Cameron, basically doing the drum programming and setting up the rigs and making sure our crude MIDI system in those days worked correctly and doing sound design and so forth, making all the scary noises and pitching down drum sounds to make weird ambiences and stuff cool and so i kind of and i worked with cameron for three or four years which is what brought me to los angeles after that tv series ended i came with him to los angeles to work on other tv projects so i was already kind of familiar with the scoring side of things before i was actually really got too deep into making records then once i was out in los angeles with cameron that kind of then i was exposed to a much wider world of music production uh, out here in Los Angeles, and that's what sucked me into the record industry and wound up doing remixes and production work for industrial metal bands and that sort of thing, and that's what kind of pulled me into the orbit of, of Nine Inch Nails, and I was originally brought over to Trent's, Trent Reznor's studio to do sound effects on a music video by an old college friend who was not a music friend, but who was working as one of the many producers on the video. And he said, hey, I've got a guy that can come over and do this. It's my buddy from college. And so I went over to spend an afternoon at Trent's studio manipulating samples of dentist drills and jackhammers and stuff to, <laughs> to, to make sound effects for a music video. And then I kind of never left. I wound up going on the road with the band before I was in the band, setting up and operating the portable studio that Trent would work on in hotel rooms when there was a few days off. And then eventually, after about a you know half a year or so of, of doing that, the uh, previous keyboard player, James Woolley, uh, was kind of at the end of his tenure with the band. So when he was out, I was in. Actually, my first gig actually playing keyboards in front of an audience was with Nine Inch Nails, and I think it was on New Year's Eve at the Palace at Auburn Hills in Detroit uh, with something like 22,000 people in the audience. Wow. Uh, Before college, you know, all through elementary school and high school, I played drums. So that's what kind of, that was my main instrument. That's the only instrument I could 
sit down and and jam at and keyboard my you know my transition into a keyboard player quote unquote came because drums begat drum machines begat sequencers begat <laughs> computers and the ideal input device to a computer was a keyboard <laughs> yeah. so it was curiously being a drummer was what pulled me into the world of sequencers and synthesizers and keyboards Man, that's a really kind of interesting transition then from a drummer to, to keyboards and then processing through the technology. You know, I was never a spectacular drummer, and I actually liked the results I was getting from drum machines better than what I could do behind the drum kit. And, of course, this was the 1980s when throughout rock and pop music we were seeing drum machines. I mean, even Don Henley of the Eagles, who was a fantastic drummer, was using Lindrums on his solo record. So it was definitely a sign of the times that drum machines in those days were invading. And I quite liked the precision and the flexibility of sound and just the ability to experiment with a wider tonal palette with electronics and drum machines than I could with, with acoustic drums in those days. So it was... It was definitely a sideways journey into keyboards for me, but uh, seems to have worked out. <laughs> yeah, it definitely went well for you. So how did that come back around towards music composition? When was the kind of first time that you started taking a step more towards that again? Well, when I was working with the composer Cameron Allen in the late 80s on these TV shows, that was one of the first times when I was able to actually see what was inside a TV score in terms of what what are the darn notes? What are the sounds? And I was the guy that would do all of the editing of the MIDI sequences and kind of prepare it to be mixed. So that was when I f was the first time I was really able to see under the hood. And, and it was very different to my experiences in making records because there was just a lot less. Cameron was a very minimal composer and it wasn't sort of flowery orchestral stuff at all. His favorite artist was Brian Eno, and so there was a lot of artistic minimalism. And that's where I kind of learned the guts of what, what elements made up the kind of music I liked in that world. And then after, you know, my, my participation in the record industry for throughout the, the uh, 90s was in a very different frame of things. I mean, it was a lot of loud and aggressive music, and it was really focused on sound design and using, you know, I had a, a crazy collection of synthesizers and samplers and was always trying to find one more guitar pedal that would distort sampled drums in an interesting way. So there was sort of a detour there, especially with the, the Nine Inch Nails years, of just where I spent a lot of time and energy uh, experimenting with sound and with manipulating things in the studio. And, of course, we didn't have a lot of software tools in those days. It was sort of all hardware, you know. It was just tons of synthesizers and drum machines that might only be good for one or two sounds. So that was a, 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 a definitely a detour, but those the skills that I was able to refine in, in those years have definitely formed a large part of my background for moving into scoring. And when I left Nine Inch Nails in 2001, I, we were based in New Orleans for many years, sort of in an isolation chamber of our <laughs> own making. And when I left uh, in 2001, I returned to Los Angeles and was not aiming to get into scoring. I was aiming to continue uh, record production and remixing and programming and so forth. And I did for a year or two finished an album by the band Helmet that uh, that I had started uh, writing with Paige Hamilton, the guitar player and singer, while I was in New Orleans. Helmet had toured with Nine Inch Nails on some l various legs of tours. And so we became friends. We wrote a bunch of music together. When I returned to L.A., we finished that record, which became the Helmet album called Size Matters. And I worked for another year or so producing uh, sort of independent industrial metal type stuff. And then completely out of the blue and totally at random, a phone call came from 
my lawyer, who I only speak to like once a year, <laughs> and he said, get a pencil, take down this number. There's these guys that have this independent horror film, and they've used a bunch of your remixes and stuff in the temp score. And so I called these guys up, and it turned out to be James Wan and Lee Whannell, who had the first Saw movie. And they awesome. had just finished it, and they had put – they had found – some very obscure remixes I did, like some Nine Inch Nails remixes that only came out on a European edition CD maxi single. And oh, wow. These guys had dug deep. And their temp score was full of all kinds of aggressive industrial music. At one point they had, uh, in, in the movie, for almost at the end of the movie, they had Ministry playing out of the left speaker and Einster's End Neubotten playing out of the right speaker. <laughs> I mean, just total mayhem. And... I thought this is amazing that these guys are using this type of music and doing a very aggressive uh, take on film music and went and met them. And by the next morning, I was working on their movie while we were still recording vocals on the Helmet album in the other room at my house. So it was a it was sort of out of the blue, but I wasn't strictly a guy from a band who was looking to move into scoring. I had already done many years working with Cameron Allen as the, as the number two man on, on the team. And so I wasn't completely green. I knew the workflow. I knew the terminology. I knew the, the process to some degree, but I was coming at it from a background of a different style of music. And it was just very fortunate that, the the first project that I did when I returned to scoring was this Saw movie, which was well suited with by using some a very non orchestral approach. Although in that first movie, I did do a lot of orchestral tones, not strictly trying to simulate, you know, flowery John Williams arrangements or anything, but not wanting it to sound completely electronic. So there was a good mixture of some more gentle orchestral sounds through the first half of the movie merged with a little bit of, uh, of synthesizer stuff, but not much, just more processed acoustic sounds that sounded creepy. And then as the, towards the end of the movie, when it turns into uh, industrial mayhem, it was, you know, I was banging pots and pans in the kitchen and recording that. You know, there was awesome. It was a very. Uh, it wasn't all that electronic, but it certainly wasn't orchestral. So that was the kind of the the thing that kind of kicked down the doors. And when all of us thought we we didn't realize that Saw would become you know a global horror movie phenomenon in quite the way that it did, um, but it was certainly gratifying that it found an audience and that it wasn't so strange to have my style of music on it that they wound up, you know, it was, it wasn't a situation where the first movie has some weirdo like me doing the score and then the subsequent sequels, they get a real guy in, you know, I wound up, <laughs> I wound up doing all seven of them. We did one every year for seven straight years. And during that time, I also did, uh, a few more movies that James Wan had created, uh, Dead Silence and Death Sentence, which were more traditional. They weren't quite so in, in a strange little pocket like the Saw movies were. So those were good opportunities to broaden my approach a little bit. And that led to a variety of similar movies that were still suited with having an aggressive sound, but weren't compatible with like an Einster's and Neubot and metallic percussion solo. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Now, obviously, we can't talk to you without bringing up Saw and talking a bit more about that. And I remember going to see the first movie at the cinema, and that theme has stuck with me ever since. It is just one of the most iconic themes ever written. It's it's so recognizable, and everyone knows it now. So I'd love to know well how you were inspired for that theme and when you kind of said, yes, that's the key theme I want to be throughout. Well, we knew that the whole movie, I mean, my, my theory with the, the layout of the score for the first Saw movie was that I wanted the whole score to sound as though it kind of had its back turned to the audience. 
Right. And, you know, as if you're watching a bunch of guys in a parking lot beating somebody up, but all you can see is the backs of these guys as they're pummeling something. You don't know what it is. And then when we get to the sort of final montage with voiceover sequence in the movie where all is revealed, mm. that's when I definitely wanted the score to turn around and face the audience with its nose six inches away, you know? Yeah. And so I purposely made the whole body of the score sort of murky and indistinct and slippery and dark. And then I kind of wanted the opposite for this montage sequence. And so I used, a, instead of big, lush, reverbed out string sounds, I used a small string quartet that was much drier and sounded very sort of strident and pokey. And that's when I was just, I literally loaded up a sound. I think it was like a very crude string quartet sound on like a Kurzweil keyboard and just was mucking about and wanted to have something that was, I mean, the, the best term I can use to describe it is strident, you know, something that was not graceful and flowing, but was just very cut and dried and simple. And I literally came up with the sort of main string part within minutes of fiddling with this string quartet sound. And I immediately sort of locked into this little progression. And I think the first thing I put up was the hammered dulcimer sound. that's sort of this jangly little ostinato that starts the cue. Yeah. I had that kind of looping and I was fiddling with the string sound and came up with that strident riff and it all came together very quickly. The rest of the track is all the percussion is from a circuit bent Alesis HR 16 drum machine. You know, those, the, the ones you can get off eBay for a few hundred bucks where guys get inside and string a bunch of wires to points on the circuit board and mount them to switches on the front panel. And as you manipulate the switches, it makes the, the brains of the drum machine screw up. And so you get those sort of grating little digital noises in where, where the drum sounds used to be. And so that was the sort of percussion track. And it kind of came together from there. It was really just those, those three elements plus a bit of candy and overdubs. And so it came, the, the, that theme came together fairly quickly. I, I knew it had, it wanted to be something in the vein of, you know, the Halloween theme yeah. or something that was simple and bite sized and memorable, but very different in character to the rest of the music in the film. So it came together very quickly, but we, in all of the, in all seven of the movies, we would reprise that theme and revisit it for each movie. And it would sort of get longer and bigger with, with each sequel till at one point, I think one of the versions is like 11 minutes long or something. (laughs) So it would get stretched out because that, that reveal sequence in each movie that sort of became a fee, a trademark of those movies that there was always some flashback montage at the end with a voiceover that explains all the stuff that you were missing, all the camera angles that you weren't seeing from the, the rest of the movie. And so it just became a trademark of those movies that we used that, that characteristic theme as a way to signify, okay, now we're going to, explain what you've just been watching <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's amazing and i still get chills in that scene at the end of the first movie where the, the song comes in and like you say the powerful moment where everything gets explained and the, and the theme really put that together for me and that's just it's been brilliant throughout all of the movies like you say it's a, kind of a trademark how does it progress throughout the movies is it influenced by the storyline in the films how have you developed it as the films have gone along well for each time we'd revisit it and it would get longer it would be a case of, I mean, the, the first time we did it, it was sort of a, a fake out. We would come back, you know, the montage sequence would start. We would begin with the traditional uh, Hello Zep theme for this montage. And then in the, the way they had cut the picture in the, I believe it was in the second movie, the, the, the reveal montage begins and you think you're at the end but then there's more. Right. So 
I basically arranged the, the, that version of the theme so that it seems like you're arriving at the sort of final descending chords that are going to lead to the door slamming and the credits rolling. But then I injected a new section, a new transposed version, and it's sort of like, but wait, there's more. And that became the kind of modus operandi for the subsequent ones, that there was always one more chapter to be tacked on to the end of the montage scenes. And in some cases, it was, uh, at one point we did a double fake out, where it, the theme begins, you think it's ending, and it, it goes to a completely different musical world with these slow spiccato strings that gradually speed up and then it takes you back then you realize oh we've circled around and we're back in that musical theme and then there was yet another fake out and another <laughs> turnaround um so it became almost like doing a remix every year and trying to find a way to create a new composition that was still based on the original and contained everything that was in the original but more and more new sections. And so that became kind of, it did get to be a challenge. By the time that montage sequence was 10, 11 minutes long and this, the theme had been extended and transposed and modulated, uh, it definitely got to a point of like, wow, where am I going to, where else can I take this piece of music that I've been listening to for the last seven years? You know, uh, do you have a favorite version? Out of all seven that you did, is it still the original, or do you have another one that you think, yeah, that's actually the best version of that theme? I don't know. There's, I do have a soft spot in my heart for the original because it's sort of lovably crude and simple, and there's a little break and modulation and turnaround even in the original that was never never hit with the same impact that it did. You know, in subsequent versions when when I did that little break and turn around, it didn't have the same impact as in the original because in the original, that was the only break from that sort of insistent theme was this little lift and turn around and drop back in. And in subsequent versions, they sort of distracted you from that key moment. But there was, I think it, I can't remember which it is, but it would be about, about saw three or four was where one of the extended versions had kind of all the good bits and not too much added to where it just became distracting. And I can't remember which it was, but right around in the middle of the of the franchise, I thought, you know, that's the ultimate version of this theme. And then, of course, in subsequent years, had to make it even more ultimate somehow <laughs> <laughs> no pressure just keep making it more yeah epic. now i could talk about saw forever but i won't uh, that another film i really wanted to talk to you about that you've worked on is resident evil extinction mm-hmm. now i'm a big resident evil fan myself uh, of the video games and uh, i just was curious whether you played the games at all before working on the film only a little and i wasn't neck deep in the the folklore of the franchise when I got into it, but I did know, I, I quite liked the score that Marco Beltrami did with some uh, collaboration with Marilyn Manson on the first movie. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of Marco's work on lots of his movies, especially uh, I, Robot, which I thought he did a fantastic job on. Oh, yeah, fantastic, yeah. Which has a great opening title sequence with these glitchy analog synth percussion things and stuff. And so was I've always been a big uh, Beltrami fan. And so I knew the score to the first movie kind of better than I knew the video games. But what was kind of obvious is that the setting for the movie I was doing, Resident Evil Extinction, was very different to what had been established in the rest of the movies in that, you know, the rest of the movies take place in dark dungeon, like destroyed underground cities with water dripping and malfunctioning fluorescent lights flickering in the background. (laughs) Resident Evil Extinction takes place outdoors. They're out in the desert. They're wandering through the destroyed city of Las Vegas and so forth. So it was a very different geographical setting. So that definitely affected my approach. And a lot of times, I mean, I don't think, I wouldn't presume to say that I either suffer from or am blessed with synesthesia, per se. (laughs) I do tend to categorize sounds 
and musical motifs as sounding as though they're indoors or outdoors or sounding like they're coming from within your head. So for me, a lot of picking an approach, both with the sounds I'm using and with the musical data that's going in behind it, is where is this thing taking place? And so you know, an example would be the Saw movies were all te- like the first Resident Evil were taking place in these claustrophobic, dark, subterranean rooms with no windows. Mm. And so to me, that kind of describes a certain quality of sound that's not necessarily dry, but has a different character to its reverb and echo and so forth. And Owl, for instance, big sort of epic movie drums, big epic taiko drums to me, don't sound right when they're up juxtaposed against a scene that's taking place in some dank underground dungeon. So to me, those type of sounds, big, splashy, epic movie drums, sound like they're outdoors. Yeah. And they should accompany action that's taking place outdoors. So it was definitely, with Resident Evil Extinction, it was definitely a case of, since the, the visuals are a lot of times... You know, these they're, they're vehicles driving across the endless expanse of the desert as they try to get from one spot to another. And so that's, to me, described a different character of a different categories of sounds that I would use, but also is leads me to a different place compositionally that when the action is taking place indoors in small spaces and so forth, uh, I would tend to use much closer voicings in a chord for instance keeping all the notes of a chord within a single octave and not straying beyond that and having like a clear separation between the 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 right hand on the keyboard which would be playing some close voiced chords within an octave and then a wide gap and then the low end would be playing very low and distinctly separate to that stuff in the upper octaves. But when I was outdoors, in the case of like Resident Evil and things like that, then I would tend to use wider voicings where a three or four note chord would be spread across two or more octaves. And also doubling things, if there was a melodic line on strings, let's say, then it would, if it's outdoors, it would, to me, it would sort of be okay, allowed to double that line an octave or two up and do things like that, which to me wouldn't necessarily have sounded right in a claustrophobic visual setting. Yeah, sure. So there's a lot of, I'm kind of sensitive to that, that aspect, and I let that kind of guide me both in the sounds I choose to use and also in the the notes that are being played. And I'm to me, that's just an, a natural response and reflex to what I'm seeing on the screen. And I would, I hope that it translates as well to the viewer and listener as it does to me. But to me, it's just one of those things that, well, that doesn't sound right. I'm not going to use those voicings because we're outdoors now, so I can be more spread out and more expansive in how I structure the music. And so that was... Those little theories like that, that that you adopt can be very helpful as a sort of a, a touchstone or, a, you know, a guidepost to uh, working your way through such a long and complex process as, you know, a fairly epic movie like uh, like the Resident Evil Extinction was. A lot of composers talk about how they relate to the setting of the film. And I think this one's just a perfect way of putting it, really, with it allowing for your instrumentation and how you kind of treat each instrument. And, yeah, it, it makes sense to me. Good. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one that it made sense to. <laughs> Maybe we're both just crazy. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk about something you've been working on a, a lot more recently. So you've been working on the Fox series Wayward Pines, haven't you? Mm-hmm. So ha- how did you first get involved in that, and what's your process been with that so far? Well, that, I'm not sure how I, I'm not sure what in my repertoire the producers and showrunners and everybody responded to, but... It was definitely a head drama, and in that it kind of takes place in the possibly malfunctioning brain of Matt Dillon's character. And when I was first brought on board, I was shown the pilot episode, the first episode in the 10-episode series, but I hadn't read the books yet, and I was sort of 
thrown in to start working on that pilot without knowing where the story was leading. And if you're just watching the first episode, you know, Matt Dillon's character is in a car wreck and he's suffered a traumatic brain injury and he's recovering in the hospital and he goes and wanders through this creepy little town where everyone's in on something, but you can't figure out what it is. And for a while in the series, you don't know if, you know, you're viewing everything through his eyes and you don't know if, is, is, are all these people really plotting something or is he just messed up in the head from this car wreck? And it wasn't revealed to me until we were working on the series where this thing would go and that it does, in fact, turn into this epic sci-fi journey spanning thousands of years. Right. Uh, and I remember sort of chiding the uh, one of the showrunners that, hey, why didn't you tell me this was where this was going to go? And they said, well, no, it's it's actually worked out well that you didn't because then you wouldn't accidentally reveal where this thing was going through the music. And, you know, what I wound up, my approach on the first few episodes was very different to what I would do on subsequent episodes where, you know, in the first episode, I used a lot of sounds that I would describe, like I was saying before, as being inside your head. Right. Things. I wanted the music to sound like it was occurring inside Matt Dillon's character, inside his mind. So I used a lot of like dry guitar feedback and just small sounds that were screwed up, but weren't gigantic and epic. Um, and then as the story progresses and the, the scope of the plot is revealed to be much more epic than just a brain damaged guy in a weird little mountain town. <laughs> then I was, then the sort of the doors open, you know, it's like throwing open the barn doors and then big sounds and bigger musical themes can, can come in. And it was partly by accident because I didn't know where the show was going to wind up going. But in the long run, I think that half accidental approach worked better than I could have hoped in that I didn't reveal anything through the music accidentally. Not that you can't really, but it, it made for a nice shift in the tonality as the thing goes on, which I think kept it interesting as you move through the episodes. The reveal kind of coincided with you letting loose with the music with after you found out what was going to happen. Exactly. So, yeah, I think it worked really well. I think you now, I'm really curious, of, of everything you've worked on so far and, and your whole career, which has covered God, good, countless amounts of <laughs> projects. A wide variety. Yeah, definitely. Very eclectic. And would you say there's been any particular moment out of all of it that has been the most challenging? Um, let's see. I mean, it's all... I, I, I will say that the Saw movies are challenging from a logistical standpoint in that there's a lot of very elaborate cues with very elaborate programming, you know, in terms of like a lot of the trap sequences where I'd have, you know, pounding industrial drums and psychotic orchestra effects. And so those were challenging from a logistic standpoint of just organizing and mixing and getting everything to happen on, on the computer. But in terms of, sitting there scratching my head, wondering what notes to play. That wasn't the case with the Saw movies. There's because that's sort of, that's sort of second nature with my sound design and musical background. Mm. Um, and the things that are more challenging were movies like Dead Silence, which has almost had a child's fairy tale like aspect with the, the haunted ventriloquist dolls and these little, music box and toy piano phrases. And so unfamiliar territory is always much more challenging than, than familiar ground. And, you know, I kind of, my analogy is that doing the Saw movies after a while, it sort of makes you feel like you're a Sherpa on Mount Everest. And you're saying to the, the, the wealthy mountain climber at the bottom of the mountain, well, which route should we take? This time, do you want the north face? Do you want the south face? Are we going to base camp and spend two days? You know, you kind of know every route up the mountain, and it's just a matter of picking the one you want to use today, as opposed to 
working on movies where I'm not as familiar with the musical style or even the style of movie, then I start to feel like the mountain climber himself. This is the, his first time up the mountain, and it's going to be a fantastic adventure and an amazing journey, and every step of the way he'll learn something new. And so movies like Dead Silence or even things like Wayward Pines have much more unfamiliar territory for me, sonically and musically, and those are the kind of things that are represent more of a challenge and therefore more of a feeling of triumph if you succeed. It's probably the best analogy I've, I've heard in a long while. <laughs> that was a pretty epic analogy. <laughs> On the flip side then, have you, have you got anything out of the whole career that's your proudest moment? I wonder what that would be. You know, there's every once in a while as I go through the library of 400 or so cues from the Saw movies, there's a few in there that I think, wow, that was just fantastic, but were maybe buried in all the mayhem and action. Um, and I, when I'm when I'm just listening to the music and thinking, wow, that's a great piece of music, that doesn't necessarily mean that was a triumph of expert scoring or whatever. It doesn't necessarily mean that that was the best moment of music working with picture. Sometimes the most successful feeling of getting it right with the picture is not an elaborate piece of music and it might not be all that interesting when it stands alone but you know there was a few moments in both dead silence and death sentence where it did seem to click that way although the music the underlying music wasn't terribly difficult or elaborate to do but just seemed to work really well although there was one movie I did that, that nobody ever saw called Deep Water. And that had uh, Lucas Black, who's a fantastic actor, one of my favorites. He was in Jarhead, and he also, at a very young age, he must have been nine years old or so, was the young kid in the movie Sling Blade, which is one of my favorite movies ever. And I remember seeing that movie and thinking, who is this little kid that has this intensity and is a natural-born actor and so he was in this movie called deep water that i did which is i think the second movie i ever did after the first saw film came out and it was a just a little movie a psychological drama kind of thing he he gets out of a mental hospital and moves to this little tiny town and thinks that familiar territory thinks everybody's ganging up on him he winds up going on this kidnapping spree and all kinds of bad things happen turns out they weren't all ganging up on him. When you get to the end of the movie, this, they start revealing the other camera angle that you didn't see in those scenes when he thought he was being persecuted by the townspeople. In the end of the movie, then they show you the other, you know, camera two angle shows that that's not really how it was at all. And he really was <laughs> hallucinating all this stuff. And in that movie, there was a lot of what I would call brain farts in the right. score that as his, <laughs> as his mind is malfunctioning and he's convinced that everyone's ganging up on him. There was a lot of moments in the score when I'd used a lot of uh, these circuit bent toy instruments like the circuit bent uh, Casio SK one sampler. And uh, I have a little collection of speak and spell and talking teacher speech synthesizers, which are bent and by flipping switches and manipulating them you get all these sounds that are just freaking wrecked and do not are not something you get from a keyboard or a synthesizer or a sample library. And so there was a lot of those type of sounds woven through the score as there's jarring edits in the picture that accompany his mind kind of going. And there was also a lot of fun rhythmic things that I did by using pencils to tap on the guitar strings above the nut and doing a lot of percussion parts by hitting stringed instruments with sticks and with little dulcimer hammers and with little dragging chains across guitar strings and things like that. And so from a sonic playground point of view, that little movie Deepwater had some things that when I listen back to them, I think, wow, that was just freaking fun and cool and different and it was very not orchestral but there was also a lot of somber moments as he's sort of uh, one scene when he's wading into the lake thinking he may drown himself because he just can't take it anymore and there was these some cues that I wound up doing that were 
not quite atonal, but had some very wrong harmonies in them. And those were done sort of in the tradition of the Nine Inch Nails heavy studio manipulation of sounds. And they originally were guitars, but they don't sound like it anymore. And so there were some moments in there in that score, which I thought worked really well with picture, but also are interesting to listen to on their own. And of all the movies I've done, that was the one that the fewest people saw. It kind of sank without a trace. Um, but when I listened to it, listen to the score, or when I go back and watch it, I think that one actually was one of the one of my favorite moments in my repertoire. I want to just watch it just because of the soundtrack. Now it sounds like it's got loads of cool stuff in there. It was it was definitely fun and different, and because it was a relatively small scale movie, it. I, w- I was sort of free to do a lot of weirdo stuff like that without uh, the worry that some studio executive is going to say, no, 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 I think we need the big epic string section here. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you obviously use some cool techniques there, like hitting stringed instruments and things like that. So I wanted to talk to you a bit actually about your tech. And do you have a main setup that you use to write music at the moment that you kind of stick to, like a core amount? Or? Yeah, I mean... I've been a, a user of uh, Logic software for 20 or so years, and so everything that I compose kind of comes out of that. And I still, unlike many film composers who immediately started uh, using the Native Instruments contact sampler and all of the huge orchestral sample libraries, I have that. I have tons of those libraries. I have all that junk. But I still am most comfortable and can move can work with the most flexibility and speed just using logic and the crude exs24 sampler that's included for free with the thing now and so you know the vast majority of what you hear on my scores is just done with logic and the built-in plugins that come for free and the EXS24 sampler. Now, of course, the samples in the sampler are <laughs> things that I made. And I kind of, since I came up in the world of, in the era of like the original Fairlight and the original like Emu and Akai samplers, I still kind of have a, a warm spot in my heart for simple things like a very interesting sample that you made with a bowed guitar or something that is just a single sample mapped across the entire keyboard and can be dealt with in a very simple and uh, low-impact fashion to achieve good results. And so for me, it's all about the, the content that goes into the sampler as opposed to fancy user interface features like you see on many of the contact instruments where you have a million sliders and arpeggiators and so forth and i tend to work quicker with a simpler workspace and i have all the you know i am a bit of a uh of a gear slut and a sample slut so i do buy lots of stuff that a lot of which gets used just once in a while but the majority of what i'm doing comes out of logic uh i do use ableton live quite a bit as a rewire slave behind logic to manipulate uh, rhythms and also to uh, to use its pitch warping engine as a sort of sample mangling tool, even for like drone type things. And I'll do a lot of processing where I'll take sort of atonal orchestral effects type sounds, like clusters of atonal notes played on high woodwinds, and put those into Ableton and manipulate how Ableton is changing their pitch using the various settings on the pitch warping engine to create sort of granular synthesizer type effects. And so I'm very much a fan of both mixing digitally and in the box and also manipulating things using software tools. And that's the kind of stuff that really started to come on full steam when we were, when I was involved with Nine Inch Nails. That's when we were first starting to see kind of advanced software tools for sound mangling, like the original when Reactor first came out from Native Instruments and similar type of tools that really allowed you to wreck things in the computer. Uh, you know, one of the crucial tools in the early years of Nine Inch Nails was the original uh, digi-design program called TurboSynth, which was very oh, cool. crude by today's standards, but had a sound and would do horrible things to your samples if you wanted to. <laughs> and so I, that kind of way of working has always been 
near and dear to my heart, and I still work that way quite a bit and tend to manip- tend to spend a lot more time in the box manipulating things than I do walking across the room to play the old Prophet VS or the Oberheim Expander. All of that stuff I still have, but in recent years, I tend to prefer manipulating acoustic sounds rather than starting with a sawtooth wave on an analog synth or something. I did get pulled into the rabbit hole of Eurorack modulars, uh, since that's the kind of thing I learned on when I was in college. So I do have a fairly substantial setup of that. But I tend to favor, I mean, you know, I've been wiggling the low-pass filter cutoff knob now for 30-some years. So (laughs) while it starts to lose, it's, it's it's not as fresh and new to me as recording a Chinese guzeng and playing it with a bow or a guitar pick and creating interesting rhythms with that and then pitch changing them down two octaves inside the computer and manipulating acoustic tones with digital effects and manipulation. Uh, One guy I've collaborated with a few times on different scores is this uh, guitarist and metal sculptor and sound artist named Chaz Smith, who is an expert virtuoso pedal steel guitar player, but also a very sophisticated metal worker. And he can build things using exotic metals like titanium and so forth at this incredible metal shop he has with these huge lathes and plasma cutters and all this sort of thing. Oh, awesome. And he, he, I used, I met him through some of my art rock friends and his music is just beautiful and ambient and haunting and made on a combination of these musical sculptures that he builds and these steel guitar-based creations that he makes. He has one guitar called Junior Blue that is machined from a solid block of aluminum, and it's about wow. five feet long and has a dozen or so strings and vaguely resembles a pedal steel guitar, but only he can play it. You know, <laughs> and so I, I became introduced to him through right on the, around the time when I was doing the first Saw movie and used a bunch of sounds that he had created on the Saw movie. And they became kind of part of the sonic vocabulary of that world. These sort of sustainy, bowed, metallic tones that are definitely have an acoustic origin, but don't sound like just banging on pots and pans or hanging around the junkyard in subsequent in recent years he's worked uh with hans zimmer on the man of steel score there's a little mini documentary about the making about hans making the score for man of steel in which Chaz is featured and they show him assembling a a steel guitar army of i think it was eight eight steel guitar players to playing all together through amps in in the big room uh and hans used that on man of steel and also they used a lot of his sonic sculptures to create some of the girthy tones in that score. Uh, and I like to think that I found Chaz before Hans did, <laughs> although that may, that may not really be the case. But uh, that's a, just a good example of the kind of things that intrigue me sonically and, and inspire me musically are things that came from the real world. That You know, to, I don't use synthesizers all that much anymore and my scores don't sound like r2d2 you know (laughs) there's a place for that certainly but i don't base my i don't start there i use that stuff as a as a coloring or an icing on the cake perhaps but i like the foundation of the music i'm doing to have some kind of roots in the real world by originating from acoustic waveforms that that came through the air and were picked up with a microphone and then we can ruin them in the computer but <laughs> so those are the kind of things that the kind of instruments that in, that are most inspirational to me and of course with the technology of software and plugins and sound manipulation apps on the computer the sky's the limit i mean i sometimes wish I half-heartedly sometimes wish I was just starting out now because back in my day when we were just starting out, our tools were so crude. And you <laughs> kids these days, you don't know how good you have it. But uh, on the other hand, I am glad that I learned my craft 
with simpler, more crude tools, because now this is all just fantastic and amazing, as opposed to maybe if I was just starting out now with these amazing tools, it wouldn't feel so amazing because I wouldn't be remembering how hard it used to be. So, I mean, I love all that stuff. I mean, I'm a sound designer myself, so I, I fully agree. And I'm very akin to the way you work with the, the real sounds that then get destroyed digitally. And, you know, there's there's a lot of crossover really now with sound design and music composition, especially in, in, in sort of the kind of things that you write as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, now, you talk about composers today. It kind of leads me nicely onto my next question, which was going to be, you know, what advice would you give to aspiring or maybe less experienced composers today? I can kind of picture that for people in that situation, it might be attractive to, you know, you you hear these amazing sound design in things like the, a trailer for a Transformers movie or something. Yeah. And then you, you're on some website looking at contact libraries and you think, oh, man, for $199, I can have this library that gets me that sound instantly. And I would caution them to step, to tread lightly into that world because my my guiding theory has always been if there's lots of other people doing it, I don't want to do it. Yeah. If it's if a sound can be achieved by buying a contact instrument or a sample pack from Big Fish Audio or something, then I don't want to do it. And you know, a classic example is sort of like uh, the the surge in dubstep style electronic music production. When I first heard Skrillex, I thought, "Oh my God, this is amazing! It sounds like a C-3PO getting butt fucked by a bulldozer." It's, <laughs> and his synth work is tr- astonishing in its boldness and insanity. But two years later, you could go on a website and buy a download a sample pack that would enable you to prefabricate tracks that okay not as good or on his level but had a a similar character and so that's the kind of thing that i always try to avoid and even though i buy lots of sample libraries i pick two or three sounds out of each one that make me think "Ooh, that's something interesting and the vast majority sits unused on the hard drives and so you know on the one hand i would say one piece of advice would be Tread cautiously as you get sucked into the seductive world of these amazing sounds that can be just purchased and downloaded. But on the other hand, don't be afraid because right now the climate for music for picture is a much freer environment than it was 15, 20 years ago. And the people that are making the movies now grew up listening to electronic music and it doesn't sound weird to them when you don't have an orchestra on a score. Um, And you see movies like uh, Ex Machina, which I saw recently, which had a great score by, uh, I think it was uh, Jeff Barrow from Portishead and uh, some of his other collaborators from that world, all electronic and fucking warped, but very effective and great. And that knowing Portishead's background, they probably didn't make that using a bunch of plugins and sample libraries. But the point is, the climate is receptive to pretty experimental approaches towards scoring and techniques like that and approaches like that can make a bold statement that's memorable. And of course, you know, for similar thinking, the work that uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have been doing in scoring is similarly bold and unconventional and knowing Trent's musical style from the backside, as I do it, it's not necessarily surprising. What they did isn't surprising to me, but that it finds a huge audience and is well-received and wins an Oscar is reassuring that the climate is receptive to bold experiments and unusual approaches to both musical composition and the sound design that goes behind it. Plus, with the ability of today's technology to create very professional results on a very low budget, until you start messing with real orchestras when costs skyrocket, well, of course, yeah. uh, I would definitely say that it's a great time to be finding your way through the journey of composing to picture because the tools are fantastic and the climate is receptive to bold approaches. So 
On the one hand, tread cautiously when it comes to buying sample libraries that might sound great on the website, but might make you sound like everyone else. <laughs> and also don't be afraid to take, uh, you know, make bold experiments with sound and music because the climate is receptive these days. And that's the exciting part, isn't it? As the technology constantly improves and changes and, and twists, you know, we, we can use more and more creative ways of making music and making sound design. And that's it's a very exciting prospect, really. Absolutely. It's a good time to be alive. Yeah, definitely. You know, I just wish I could see the technology even further in the future. Who knows? Maybe we'll come up with something so I can. <laughs> <laughs> so what lies in the future for you now? Well, Wayward Pines is finished, and I'm looking at uh, a couple of TV projects. Uh, I secretly don't favor TV versus movies. I like them both because they're two kind of different approaches and criteria. I mean, there's something fantastic about working on movies where you can really sink your teeth in, spend a long time polishing and perfecting these little nuggets of sound and music. But there's at the same time, there's also something refreshing about working on TV, which has shorter deadlines, shorter turnaround times, and where you don't spend a, a week on a hi-hat part. I mean, that was Although my years involved in the Nine Inch Nails world were fantastic and formative and I wouldn't change a thing, the one thing that became frustrating was the syndrome of spending a week on a hi-hat part. Yeah. And we definitely did a lot of that. <laughs> um, more so us on the fringes because we were contributors and collaborators, but Trent was on the mission, you know, right. and he was the guy steering the, the boat. We were down in the boiler room of the Titanic, just furiously shoveling coal uh, into the bo into the, the boilers. So it was, you know, obviously our experience will be different to, to his, but that was the the part that you don't get when you're working on TV, where you need to move quickly and make decisions quickly and get something effective and bold and not belabor the point and not second guess yourself and. There's definitely something refreshing about that approach and just committing to an idea and moving forward. And so I'm, you know, some, some composers prefer one or the other, but I really prefer to split my time between them. And although we've talked a lot about uh, the movie stuff that I've done, you know, for the seven years that I was doing the Saw movies, one a year, I was also doing two hour long weekly network drama series, a show called Las Vegas, which was on NBC, which was kind of a almost had goofball music at some points, and a show called Numbers on CBS. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, both of these were jam-packed with music. So every week it was delivering 35 to 40 minutes of score. And these were 22-episode seasons, not these little 10-episode seasons that people do, do nowadays. So there was something very refreshing about getting music done and done effectively and done quickly and moving on to the next thing. And through those years, I quite liked the fact that I was just cranking it out during the, the fall and winter months. And then in the summer, I would do a Saw movie and one other movie, like a Resident Evil or Dead Silence or something. And so having my time split between the two is kind of, that suited me because I never got sick of one approach over the other. Just when I was becoming frustrated with belaboring the point on a movie score, then that would be done, and it would be back to the quick and free and easy world of doing TV scores. And then when that would start to get old, pretty soon it would be summer again and time to do movies. So I kind of would, would hope that I can continue splitting my time between the two avenues because it's a nice balance, and I don't feel hemmed in by just always doing the same thing. And that's one of the benefits of being a composer, isn't it? That you can keep versatile and keep working on different projects, even though you're still composing. You get to change what you work on and how you work. I mean, it's like joining a, joining a different band every four months, you know? <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. So I have, I have a fun question to finish off for you now. Mm -hmm. So if you could have a drink with anyone in the world, alive or dead, who would it be and why? Oh. I'll split that into two parts. If it was going to be a long dinner and conversation, Stanley Kubrick. Right. Cool. If, if it was going to be a rousing night down the pub, 
Uh, I'd say uh, Jeremy Clarkson, James May, and Richard Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> you like your Top Gear, don't you? I do. Um, and you know, it's I, I I wouldn't necessarily learn anything from that evening, but it would be a hell of a time. God, but, you'd have to film it though, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. But Stanley Kubrick is one of the people who I just can't figure out, and that would be someone whose whose ear I would like to bend. Do you think you could? <laughs> you could figure him out <laughs> I you know I don't I would hope not I would hope that I would leave at 2 in the morning after a long dinner and lots of conversation and many bottles of wine even more confused than I was when I went in there that's what I, that's, that sounds like a Kubrick movie right that's the, it does right? <laughs> that's how it's supposed to go I hope so awesome well it's been an absolute pleasure having you Charlie thanks again for joining us thank you for having me And we look forward to your work in the future.